Let's pray together. Our Father, as we remain together in your presence, thank you that we are assured that Jesus Christ is here among us. It has been our privilege, both our privilege and our responsibility to sing praises to you. You are truly worthy of our praise. And so, Father, thank you for assembling us together today to worship you as we ought, to experience the work of the Holy Spirit shining a searchlight on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you instruct us through your word. Now I would ask that you would help us to welcome and receive the word of God into our hearts, into our lives. And then, oh, Father, you would, as always, help us to obey you, to serve you, uh, to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, body, and strength, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ truly is our beautiful Lord and Savior, and it was... I, I, got, to, I got to experience and enjoy both both services, both times and opportunities of worship and to be together and there's a special, there's a special sense of God's presence when the bride of Christ is meeting together and so, by the way, you look very beautiful today as his bride and you are a wonderful sight to my eyes. So I'm glad that you're here today. And interestingly, this exile time has served to um, move you around to different places in the church than you usually sit, which is kind of interesting to see people in different places. You get a different vantage point. I hope you're enjoying that um, because I know how possessive people can be of the very place that they normally sit in church and kind of annoying when someone sits where you're used to, I mean, your name is almost on that seat, so it's hard for you, but, but I, I enjoy the, uh, the, different, um, the different vantage point I get to, to watch as well. So there are two certainties in life, yes? Death and... Ta you don't even want to say it, do you? <laughs> I understand that. Death and taxes. I've created a third certainty in life. The third certainty in life is this that everybody and their dog is certain that they know how the church should be run. That's the third certainty that I've noticed in life. There's death taxes and everybody knows how the church is supposed to be run and they wish that the guy who was up here on the platform would just go away and they could run the whole thing themselves. Everybody seems to know what they think is supposed to be done. And the, it seems to me that the, the most um, vocal voice or the most, the most vocal experts are those people who don't even go to church. If you're watching on social media now, everybody has some sort of, they know what the church is supposed to be doing and what the church is not supposed to be doing. These are the kind of people that wouldn't know who God was if he stood right in front of them, but they think they know how the church should be run. Well, uh, we've come to that point in our, uh, our journey 
in actually the third section, the third major unit in our Identity Crisis series, how, and, and today's uh, section, or for the next several weeks, it will be how is the church governed? How is the church governed? How is the church structured? How does, how does the church operate? How is leadership uh, formed in the church, and how should it function? So, you know, all the experts out there know exactly what they, how, how things should go, but I think you will agree with me that maybe we ought to look at God's word and see what God has to say about these things. So we're going to take a little journey into the scriptures. One thing that I do notice throughout all of the Bible in ter- terms of understanding the nature and character of God is that God is a God of order and design. You just have to look around the world and you can see with your own eyes the nature of God by what is created. So we know that God is a God of order and a God of design and structure. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the uh, religious system is very detailed and very structured. God lays out very, very detailed instructions about how, the, uh, the, uh, how Israel was to, to worship him and, and how their system was to be structured. But by the time we get to the New Testament, things actually change. Jesus talks about building his church but he doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on how that church should be structured or governed. However, there are principles, there are biblical principles in the scriptures. And so we wanna ask questions today like how is the church to be governed? Who is in charge and how so? Um, How are churches to organize themselves? Do we have any Bible for this? I jotted down this and uh, uh, sent this as a late addition to my Uh, PowerPoint for today, uh, that the local church brings glory and attention to God through practicing, promoting, and preserving the truth of God by making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey the truth, and launching them into the church and the world to be loving, living, sacrificial witnesses to the wisdom of God. Governance, however we structure it, needs to be structured to make that happen. I've sort of assembled what we've learned so far about church and who we are and and put together this sort of statement that hopefully encompasses to those who think they know what the church is supposed to be doing, to those who think they know what the church is, this is what the church is and does. We bring glory and attention to God. That's we, wherever the church is, Wherever the church is, we are the presence of Christ where he has placed us. And we are called to practice and promote and preserve the truth of God because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We learned last week that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We we know we are called to make disciples. That's what we do. We baptize them teaching them to obey the truth, and launching them into the church as members of local churches, and then into the world, wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, or even beyond that, into the international scene, to be loving, living, sacrificial witnesses to the wisdom of God. Paul notes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.10 that the church is is the manifold wisdom of God. We display the wisdom of God to the uh, forces, the invisible forces in the heavenly realms. 
angels and demons, watch the church of Jesus Christ and learn through God's work in the church of the manifold wisdom of God. We put God's wisdom on display. So how's that for an assignment? How's that for a responsibility? And so it is our responsibility to structure the governance of the church, of the local church, so that we will, in fact, display the greatness of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God, and produce disciples who serve the Lord with all of their hearts, mind, soul, body, and strength. So... um, we do know that God wants order and structure in the assembly. We, you know, there are, as I said, his, his own character and nature. But one of the statements that Paul makes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, he says this with respect to church. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So there is to be in the church structure and order and design, not chaos. Um, But there is virtual silence on how leadership is to order that structure, how we are to, in fact, structure ourselves. Historically, if we do a study of of the church since its inception, roughly 2,000 years ago, we will find out that, that church systems have been structured predominantly matching the prevailing governance of the secular government that they find themselves in. So, for instance, uh, there are three major forms of church structure in our world. And you will find that as we take, we'll take a quick look at them, but you will find that that each of these structures has more mirrored the governmental structure of the time, of the era, than necessarily the structure that may be laid out in in the scriptures. Again, I want to stress with you this morning that there's latitude in church structure, Uh, not dogma. Now, I find it particularly difficult to preach a sermon that can't be dogmatic, because that's who I am. I I like to look at the scripture text and I like to say, thus says the Lord, you go home, okay. But I I can't do that today in the same way, so it's a a bit out of my element here. I'm a bit like a fish out of water. So so you need to, but you need, I want to be honest with you that, that the New Testament has just not laid out for us a defined dogmatic structure that we must follow. But there are strong principles and biblical behavior that helps us to understand how leadership should function, how we should treat each other, who we are so that we understand how we interact. And and these these things do help us and have helped us form a structure because we are structured here at Calvary. And uh, so let's look at it. So the, the three ways to structure a church um, are, are this. The first is Episcopal. I know this is a little bit of a history lesson, but, but it's necessary for us to get to where we want to get to. Uh, the first is Episcopal, and it really comes from the Greek word episkopos, which you find 
in the scriptures as a description of the leaders in the church. Uh, it, it means overseer. Unfortunately, and, and actually for, it's been the primary model and structure of church. In your notes it will say, or even on the PowerPoint here, it will say it's for 1,600 years, but the right number should really be more around 1,300 years. Ever since Constantine became emperor, the emperor Constantine became a believer, the church structure tended to be episcopal. And it follows the Roman emperor hierarchical system where it's bishop-led, archbishop, it's very, very hierarchical, where there is one major bishop leading down to other uh, bishops, cardinals, priests, dioceses, dioceses, and 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 so the model follows this this power structure that was modeled by the world, the secular world, and so uh, in Roman Catholic system, in the Anglican system, in other systems, still follow Episcopal church structure. And uh, the, at the top, the power to ordain priests comes from the top, not from the congregation. So the local congregation in an Episcopal system is very passive for the most part, the local congregation. Now, it's important for us to note that, that um, and I'm, next week we're going to talk more about this, so I don't want to give away all of next week, but, but Episcopos is merely one facet of the role of church leadership, the overseer role of church leadership. It's not a role in itself. That would be, but we'll look at that more next week. And I'll just give you a hint. In Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, Paul is addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he's addressing the so the, so the elders would be the presbyteros. And he tells them to episcopate their church, which means to oversee the church, and to poemo, poemen, to pastor, shepherd the church. So he's telling the elders to do uh, oversee sight and to shepherd the flock. It's the same person. So that, that, that's what, where we would argue, no, Episcopal is not actually a biblical model or a biblical structure in terms of how you see it laid out in the words. The second major structure of church is Presbyterian. Have any Presbyterians with us? We might. Um, And comes from the word presbyteros, which means elder. So it's elder-led, top-down again structure. And it follows, interestingly enough, a republican form of governance where there is representative leadership over the people, over the local congregation. And so the congregation is not passive, but somewhat submissive. Because again, you have a very hierarchical structure throughout the whole system. And this, both Episcopal and Presbyterian style of church still exist to this day. The third major st- structure of government is called congregational. Congregational is where um, the community itself, the local church itself, develops its structure and and direction and decision-making by consensus, by the the gathering of the congregation. And it's very much a democratic style of government and has been in vogue for about 400 years as government started to move to a more democratic system. 
And so you'll note that these systems, but, but it, it appears that once a denomination locks into a system, it never changes. So when, once you begin somewhere, that's your structure and you generally stay there. In congregational style, there's 30 plus denominations currently that would practice a congregational style and structure of government, whereby the local congregation is expected to be very active. So you move from passive to submissive to very active in a congregational style. So some people ask, well, which, what kind of church should I go or which church should I look for to put down roots as a member? Um, does, should governance matter to me? Should this kind of structure matter to me? And the answer I would always give everybody is, well, you need to search the scriptures. You need to seek a biblical, as you see the scriptures, as you understand what the Bible uh, outlines for you and how you see structure in the scriptures is probably the place that you should bring your family and land in terms of, of a church. But I, I want to make a, an, another statement, and that is this, that the church that you should be choosing is the church that's close enough to your residence so that you won't find frequent participation onerous and that the neighbors that you're seeking to reach for Christ will not be unnecessarily inconvenienced by having to come to that church and that it's biblically based in its model and shaped by biblical values and behavioral requirements of a Christian. That to me is what I would be looking for. But remember this, again, I'm gonna stress there's no, mandate no mandated structure from the New Testament. So here I'm gonna give you this morning four basic principles that I think inform structure. Basic biblical characteristics of leadership and structure and, and the people of God and who we are and bring that all together with four points that hopefully will lead us to, to a, a biblical structure and, and biblical design. So we're going to go through a little bit of scripture this morning. You're going to have to uh, do a little bit of sword drilling with us and uh, hopefully you will follow along. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples about leadership structure. And um, so as I said, four emphases today on what I think government should look like. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says this in Ephesians 5.15, be very careful then how you live. In whatever we're doing, in however we live our lives, in however we structure our gatherings and structure who we are as a local church, there is this overriding principle that we are not reckless and careless and just slap things together, but rather in our lives we're to be very careful how we live. And so it is in the, the model and structure of how we, how we relate to each other. And the first is this, found as I said in Matthew 20, Jesus calls his disciples together for a huddle. And he says to them in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Twice Jesus emphasizes this word over them, uh, and, and literally he's saying they're, they're lords over lord. The structures you see around you, the pagan structures you see around you, interestingly, the... the, the the very structures that Episcopal eventually served, the very, he says, the, these overlords and high officials exercise authority over you, not so with you. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. I want to leave it at that point. So Jesus is calling together, and throughout the scriptures, we're going to see in a few moments, calling on leadership, but not lordship. Leadership, but not lordship. Now, of course, we're talking at the human plane. Obviously, Christ is the head of his church. We support the lordship of Jesus Christ, but we don't support the lordship of human beings. Leadership, not lordship, where leaders are looking to develop people and not to dominate them. Well, where did I get that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul is giving instructions to the early church, he's talking about the fact that God has given to the church leadership to grow the church, to strengthen the church, to develop the church, to build the church, to, to develop, not to dominate. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.11. It was he, meaning Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Same person, pastor, teachers. To prepare God's people. So he doesn't say to lord over God's people. He says rather to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So... The human struggle, of course, among us is the, the struggle for power. Who has it and who wants it? The Bible confirms that there is leadership within the church, but not at a, at a lordship style. In Hebrews 7, or Hebrews 13, for instance, three times, three verses in the one chapter talk about leaders, leadership in the church. Remember, verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account, who? To God. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then in verse 24, greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. So, so there is this system that is established here of leadership, and the words, of course, used in in, in uh, Hebrews, our elder, uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 as well, where um, there is to be uh, uh, leadership and eldership um, that they should exist in the churches, but leadership is by the elders, but not governance by elders. The government is to be by the local congregation. We'll see that really strongly in the third point. I want to save that. I, wanna I have to introduce it here, but I want to save it uh, for you later, and elders are, are included as part of the lo local congregation. So el leadership by elders, but not government by elders. You don't see that in the church, in the New Testament. So as, as Don Carson in his book, Authority in the Church, nicely states, elders are not to rule so much as lead the church into spiritually minded consensus notwithstanding the fact that in 1 Timothy 5, it talks about ruling elders. But the emphasis is on influence and example and taking the words of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to impact people's lives. Leadership is a conduit of the truth of God to the people of God who then 
develop a consensus through the same Holy Spirit in terms of the will and way of God for a local congregation. That seems to be the design and the idea that's being shaped in the New Testament. And of course, the authority in the New Testament is the Word of God. The authority for um, leading the people of God is based solely upon the Word of God and Christ as the head of the church. That's why the church is called the pillar and foundation of the truth. And the truth is brought by the leaders to the people who are impacted by the Holy Spirit, who convinces us and convicts us to follow His Word, and the church moves forward, operating in the way it should. There's a second point that I want to draw out from this, the text uh, scriptures, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And um, that section, of course, in the scriptures where it talks about the gifts that have been given to people by, by Christ. We have been gifted by the Lord. And uh, so the second emphases that I see in the scripture in terms of structuring us, in terms of structuring us, is all not some. The emphasis in 1 Corinthians, the emphasis in the New Testament is the inclusion of all of the people in the local church, not just some of the people. Now look at, look at what it says in verse 12, for instance, of 1 Corinthians 12. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. That's the emphasis in Scripture. In other words, everybody is somebody in the kingdom of God. Everybody is somebody in the kingdom of God. We're, we're not extraneous or we're, we're not incidental. We're not accidental. The, the local church of Jesus Christ, those of you who love the Lord with all of your heart, are, are, are those who are the elect of Christ. Those who he has specifically chosen to make up his kingdom. So every one of us is a somebody in the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ intentionally chose to bring us into his kingdom, intentionally chose to make us part of his church. Every single one of you, every single one of us, an elect, we're all here for a reason. In, every, in any given local church, everybody who's been brought into that local church becomes an active, knows Christ, becomes an active, engaged member of the church, is there for a reason, every single one of us. And that means that has something then that informs the structuring of governance in how, so, so where, where people in the church operate out of their giftedness, and not out of some sort of entitlement. It's what you bring, not what you necessarily get. It's what we bring to the church. Where not all of us have a say, but all of us have a voice. Because we work toward consensus of what, what God's word tells us. And all of us are needed. Paul brings this out when he writes to the Corinthians in verse 21, this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. There, there's no one of us that isn't needed. Every single one of us, according to the scriptures, is absolutely vitally needed. 
There's the empowerment of being necessary. I'll even use the word that's out there in the streets right now, essential. Every one of you are absolutely essential to God's program for the world in this age. Every single one of you. You're essential workers in the kingdom of God. And in, in the, in the empowerment of being necessary, the body, that's the idea. And all the parts matter. There's, there's no scattered or extraneous parts sitting around and say, well, we don't really need those parts. Uh, you know, when I, when, I, um, when I put something together for Lynn, you know, she buys something from Ikea or wherever. And by the way, I'm not getting any money for these endorsements. Um, you know, I do like most guys. The instructions are only if you're in a panic at the end somehow. Because we all can build stuff, right? We don't need instructions. And invariably, when I get the thing built, there are some parts left over. And my attitude is, meh. It's, it's together. That's not how God has put us together, all right? God hasn't brought some of you in here and, 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 and he looks down and says, oh, you know what, they're kind of extraneous, so yeah. That's not how we're put together. Every single one of us are employed in the serving of God. And, and very importantly, in the, you know, you know that, this idea of us all mattering, I mean, you lose some efficiencies in that kind of a system, but what you lose in efficiency, you gain in sustainability. You gain in individual growth. You gain in discipleship. It's not about being a well-oiled machine. Oh, I'm not opposed to that. Machines run a lot better when they're well-oiled. Burning out that Volkswagen motor I told you about last week uh, without oil proved that to me when I was younger. A well-oiled machine is good, but, but we're called to be a well-grown body. We're, we're called to be built up into the unity of the faith and to maturity until we all can measure ourselves against the, the greatness of Christ. That, that's, what, that's what we're to do. I mean, some operations, some church operations are the envy of a Fortune 500 company, which is all well and good, but, but when you dissect the church, you find out that it's a church of spiritual kindergartners. That's not what... That's not what our structure should lead us to. That's why um, Peter writes and says to, um, to the church, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You all are a priesthood. I've told you this before. We are all priests of God. Not some of us, but all of us, so there is really kind of two tiers in God's universe. There is Jesus and there's the priesthood. That's it. There's the priests and there's Jesus. And the priests structure themselves in some way, but, but we all have immediate access to our high priest, to, to our Christ, all of us. We don't, we don't go through mediators. We go directly to Christ. 
You don't go through a priest to Jesus. You go directly to Jesus because you are a priest. You know, all of us are priests. We have female priests here. Someone ought to mention that to Pope Francis. You know, Baptist Church has female priests. I know you don't, but we do. We're as one Lord over all his priests. It's an equal playing field through the Holy Spirit who directs, who directs us all through common directives from God himself. So there's a third emphasis. So all not some. So leadership, not lordship. All not some. And this, the third is this, local, not hierarchical. You know, as you turn through the pages of Scripture, you will find out that the early church was de developed in a system whereby it was emphasis on local churches, local congregations, not hierarchical structures. Now, um, you know, we can take a quick journey. In, Ma in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, you'll remember that there we looked at that last week about the keys of the kingdom. And, and in Matthew uh, 18, uh, Jesus is giving instructions on what to do with uh, sinful people. But he ma it makes a point in the text that I tell you the truth, verse 18, and, and this is to the church, okay? Because in verse 17, it says, if, if this sinner refuses to listen even to the church. And then Jesus, is so referring to the church, says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He is talking about a local group of people, a local congregation dealing with a sinner in that local congregation. And the authority is granted to that local congregation. They don't just seek they don't have to seek permission from some hierarchical structure on what they do, but rather the authority is given by Jesus to that local group of people to follow through on scriptural, um, uh, scriptural obedience. In, in Acts, if we, if we chase through the early church uh, a little bit real quickly, in Acts chapter 6, for instance, which a lot of people like to think is the early formation of, of the, the diaconate in church, the deacons in church, uh, uh, the, in, in the book of Acts, it, it states here, so the 12, meaning the, the disciples, gathered all the other disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. I just want you to notice that this decision was made not just by the disciples, but by all the disciples, all those who were following Christ in that local group were responsible for this decision making. And, and then as we continue to track through the scripture, through the book of Acts, you get to Acts 13, where you have the first sending of missionaries. And in the church at Antioch, the local church uh, um, gathering in Antioch is there with were prophets and teachers and names, names the, some of the guys. And then it says in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. So you've got the church at Antioch gathered and commissioning and sending missionaries. They didn't seek, they didn't seek some hierarchical permission to do that. Keep going to Acts chapter 15 where you have the, the uh, legalistic crisis in the early church and you have the council at Jerusalem and they come together. And I want to pick up one verse and I'm going to talk about a little bit more of this in a moment. But verse 22, it says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men 
and send them to Antioch. So there was a commissioning for the responsibility of seeking counsel for the local church. But the church itself decided together. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, you have when the church is gathered, they're to exercise church discipline. Paul, we looked at that last week. And then in 2 Corinthians 2, 6, um, Paul talks to the church about their their uh, censoring of the individual sinner and saying that the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So you, you have this, this emphasis in the New Testament on um, local church congregations. In fact, the word ecclesia, which means what? Gathering, assembly, called out, called out to gather, called out to assemble, excellent. Assembly, assembly, assembling, gathering, gathering, assembling. Church is assembling. Church is gathering. Church is assembling. Church is gathering. It's called out to assemble, right? That's who we are. And Christ is the head of this priesthood of who we are, and through the Spirit interacts directly with his people. And of this word ecclesia in the New Testament, it appears 114 times, but 90 times are a reference to the local church. The emphasis of the New Testament is local church, local congregations, independently, self-governed, self-regulating, holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven in each local congregation and functioning with local oversight chosen by the local congregation. That's the New Testament system. It's not a system that shows some sort of, Rome, you know, some sort of um, royal hierarchical structure. You know, the terminology that's used for churches, brothers and sisters, family, body, not political structures. That doesn't appear in the New Testament at all. And I have to think that it's not an expectation of Jesus that that's how we would structure ourselves. The local church, there is autonomy or independence, but there is example in Scripture of associations as well, and not simply isolation. So you have the Council of Jerusalem where congregations, various congregations, Jerusalem, Antioch, come together to, to deal with a theological crisis. The, illegal, uh, the idea of legalism, insisting that people had to be circumcised to be saved. That was a theological crisis of the time. And so there was a gathering and association at the Council of Jerusalem. But the wisdom here, I think, of the New Testament is that, that all of the people are local owners of the local congregation, local owners of the vision, local owners of their own leadership, local owners of what God wants, wants to be done, not recipients of distant orders, local guardians of gospel truth as a counter to theological drift. Because most concerns of a church are situational. They're localized concerns. And so, um, you know, in, 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 uh, for instance, in Germany, in Lutheran Church in Germany, which is virtually dying as a result of the fact that that the local congregation really isn't owners of their local church. The government of Ger Germany actually finances the Lutheran churches through the taxes of all the people, which means that there's no ownership, there's no investment, no direct investment by the people in the local church. So the local churches virtually have nobody there. They function, they have pastors, they still operate, but nobody's there. They're paid by the government. 
And so there's the wisdom of scripture whereby there's a personal stake, there's a priesthood, there's, a, there, there's an importance that, 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 that is placed on that. And, and we don't receive distant orders for what we should be doing. Because the truth of the matter is Peter Drucker has stated uh, outside of the church, but, but wisdom for the church, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats vision for breakfast. You, you, can, you can develop some sort of strategy in downtown Victoria, British Columbia for the church and send it to, chat, uh, send it to Oshawa. And, and in Oshawa, uh, our culture is not the same necessarily as downtown uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And so that strategy that comes from there to here will be eaten for breakfast by our culture here. So it, it's local, it, it's the vision has to be the local culture. Every member mission comes from every member stakeholder. That's the design of the, of the uh, uh, New Testament, I believe. Because what you own, you will support. The fourth and final is this. It's, again, I, I would go back to Rome, uh, Matthew uh, 20. I go back to Matthew 20 and... Uh, I have Mark 10, 45, which is, this, is the companion verse for Matthew 20, but you might have that open. And, and Jesus, when he, when he huddled his disciples, he said to them, when he told them and called on them to be servants, he said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The fourth emphasis I see here is servants, in terms of structure, servants, not consumers. The church should not be structured to appeal to customers. And that flies in the face of a whole lot of what's going on. Because the Son of Man made a global movement by serving. Not by enforcing his rights as a king. So Christ-likeness is the critical issue for our structuring. We're called to be a community of servants, mutually serving one another and not exercising rank or rights. We don't dress up in costumes to, to, to establish some sort of hierarchical structures that don't exist in the New Testament. We are not customers expecting to be served, but rather servants expecting to serve. Where, where the people of a local church ask what they can give and not what do they get. <laughs> we should be people who shop for truth and shop for a place to serve, but not shop for a place where I can get my way or get my rights. That, that's not a New Testament principle. And in our serving, we serve. I found it fascinating in my research that, that, I, that I, I discovered the minutes from the Philadelphia Association of Baptists in 1728, which is almost 300 years ago. I was flabbergasted to notice that there was, that part of the minutes in the meeting was someone brought up in the church, I guess that they didn't want to be part of the church anymore, and they asked if it would be okay for them to switch churches to another part of Philadelphia, to which the church minuted this, church membership is not a matter of finding a place where one's needs may be met, but finding a place where one can obey God's commands with a clear conscience. And I think the two who asked to move to another church were centered out and, and asked probably 
Is this a place where you can obey God's commands? Yes. With a clear conscience? Yes. Then why in the world are you asking to change churches when you're not actually moving to another city? So that's what they thought about 300 years ago. Who knew there was consumers back then? I was surprised to find that out because consumerism, beloved, is the, the modern day threat, or maybe not so modern, to responsible congregationalism. Insisting on what you want rather than what you need in Christ stands Christianity on its head. Bruce and Marshall Shelley, who wrote a book called Consumer Church, in regards to this matter, said, many assume their needs count for more than their loyalty. Beloved, churches don't need customers. They don't need clients. They really don't need uh, critics. What churches need are fellow servants who are quick to rush to grab the towel to serve each other, to pitch in and washing feet. So what form of polity then most approximates biblical goals and values that we've looked at structurally? It would frankly appear that it's congregationalism. Not, not uh, Episcopalian, not uh, Presbyterian, but rather congregationalism which, by the way, works ideally for small congregations, maybe up to about 300 people. But Stanley Grenz, in his book, Theology for the Community of God, has proposed a hybrid between Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. He calls it semi-Presbyterianism. And um, for complex churches or larger churches that are making multiple decisions on almost a daily basis, it's impossible to bring the congregation together all, so many times. I would prefer, I, I like his model, I would prefer to call it a modified congregationalism, whereby congregational governance is delegated in terms of operational authority to elders with plural decision-making within agreed boundaries and decisions of choosing leadership, large directional decisions, moving a church in a direction, seeking the will of God together for direction is made by the congregation together. Because in, in our, even in our own situation in, in this particular time, there are legal structures in a church like ours in terms of incorporation. There are governmental entanglements with our directors, our deacons being directors, representing you legally to our country. And it provides for all kinds of more difficult and complex uh, management. But the major emphasis of the scripture is elders and leaders leading from the scriptures, impacting people's lives with the text through the Holy Spirit's uh, presence, seeking to come to consensus in direction and making certain to be caretakers and stewards and guardians of the truth together. Um, and, and, uh, but day-to-day -day management and, and this, this small decision-making is given within boundaries to, um, to individuals and leadership. So a shared vision that is carried forth by leaders. So takeaways, what, kind, what church? Well, government is by the local congregation. That's what we see in the scriptures. The, the local, local congregation should choose their own leadership, always. And elders are to be supported, meaning pastors, elders, whatever term you use, uh, are supported to lead with biblical truth, representative custodians and stewards of that truth.
Ministry is by all to all for individual growth, discipleship, and generational mission. Sharing vision together, sharing mission vision together, that it might continue through the generations to be owned by the congregation, where all the people are local owners and not recipients of distant orders, and local guardians of gospel truth as a counter to theological drift, and make major decisions together. And then decision-making must always align with our theology, always. And leadership should be called into question if ever decisions drift from our theological principles. Which, by the way, in our church are laid out for us on our website. You can see how we align. So that we make certain we escape the temptation to be pragmatic and simply seek to get big by selling goods and services rather than calling on people to come and die, which is the true call of discipleship, which is the true call of Christ. So what is the takeaway then? What structure? I think the structure has to stay true to Christ as the head of the church and his word as the ultimate authority for the church. It has to be producing disciples. And those disciples need to support the structure and need to engage and involve themselves in every possible way. People need to get involved in serving and supporting and seeking the Holy Spirit for shared direction, for mutual submission and influence to one another, and becoming members that you might choose your leadership and be guardians of the truth. That's your responsibility to each other as a New Testament church. Binding and loosing according to the authority that we've been given as a local church from Jesus himself. All these things matter as we seek to be a church that honors Christ as head, honors God's word as the final authority for everything that we do, and seek to make disciples who in turn will make disciples. Amen? Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your principles. And Lord, I think it's pretty obvious to us in terms of wisdom that laying out a detailed structure in a world that was going to not be a theocracy but would be governed by, for the most part, pagan leadership would require structures that had flexibilities within the principles of God's word. And you've given that to us. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord. We, we seek to honor you. We seek to understand that Christ is the head of this church. And we seek to model our, our behavior and our decision-making from what we can find in the scriptures together. We seek to honor and respect the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in all of the lives and hearts and minds of the people who belong to Christ here. And take that very seriously. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in these coming days to continue to structure ourselves and mobilize ourselves in the world that you've called us to, in the time that you've called us to, to most honor you and most uh, uh, carry forth the mission of the gospel. So we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.